0: Uh, Welcome to those of you uh, joining us now online. If you can't be in the room, we're always glad that you can tune in uh, through the internet to be a part of worship. We're glad to have you be with us today. Um, We're in a series where for five weeks, today's the middle installment of a series where we are... Uh, looking at what God is calling us to be as a church. And I'm just realizing as I see Lynn in the back, I forgot to invite the kids to be dismissed. So let me pause and say all our kids, first through sixth grade, you know the routine. If you'll follow Miss Lynn around to uh, Sweet D for your teaching time, now's the time. Uh, We are uh, in Ephesians 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there with me as we are trying to catch a glimpse of what God is calling Freedom Church to become and what we believe that God is shaping us uh, to be. And over the course of the past couple of weeks, we've talked about... Uh, how God is calling us to be a kingdom minded people who aren 't focused on how can we advance just our congregation and strengthen our congregation, but really be kingdom minded in seeking to reach the world and to disciple people and send them into the world and last week we talked about how we 've got to be really careful as a church that we don 't fall into the trap of thinking in terms of what we together can collectively pull off with with our personalities and our gifts and our programs, that uh, if, if we're going to be a church that's a real difference maker, that we've got to be Spirit-empowered in some of the specific ways that God wants us to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about change, to save the lost, to heal the sick, to free those who are in bondage, and to bring about real transformation within us at a personal level. And so what we're going to talk, talk about and look at today is a little bit different from the other four weeks in that all of the other messages are dealing with What we collectively must do together. But what we're going to talk about today, at every point, though there are pieces of this that we do together, each of the things that we talk about today ultimately falls on you and me individually to decide, will we be the kind of people that will allow Freedom Church to be a place where God works powerfully? We're going to look today at the things that if we don't each individually choose to do, many of them on a daily basis, then we're just going to be an ordinary church. And I know that's not who and what we want to be. So today's about, you now, what's my part in this whole thing of helping church to, to be something extraordinary? And uh, the the thing that God has... Call to mind for me is just a a couple of different word pictures, or a couple of different pictures that I'm going to try and share in words that I hope will help to drive this home. And as we look together at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, I'm going to draw back on these same couple of pictures again and again. Let's pick up in verse 16 of Ephesians 3, where we're reading this prayer from the Apostle Paul. It's a prayer for the church. Now, you bear in mind, he is writing to saved people. In Ephesus, he's not writing to them individually, but to the church collectively. And at the heart of this prayer, he says this. I'm asking God to give you a gift from the wealth of his glory. And I pray that he would give you an inner strength and power through his spirit. That's what we talked about last week. Then, operative word there, then Christ will live in you through faith. And I also pray that love may be the ground in which you sink your roots And on which you have your foundation. This way, with all of God's people, you will be able to understand how wide, long, high, and deep His love is. And you will know Christ's love, which goes far beyond any knowledge. And I am praying this so that you may be completely filled with God. Would you just say that last phrase with me? Completely filled with God. Paul lays a couple of things out as the goal in this. Obviously that God would get glory. But for the individual believers and in the church, he's saying, What I long for you is that you would be totally filled with God. That Christ would actually live in you. Now, I've got to tell you, that... The way that's worded the first time, it would have thrown me off for years because I'm, I'm always a nitpicker for You've got to say it the right way. You've got to have your theology right. And it sounds like, compared to what I always heard growing up, like Paul's a little off in his theology. Because notice how he says this. He says, I pray that God would give you inner strength and power through His Spirit. Great. We as Christians, we want to live with all of this strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. But then it gets a little off, it seems, when he goes, then... Like, after the fact, then Christ will live in you through faith. And for most of my life, I would have wanted to say, wait a minute, Paul, you got that backwards. Haven't you ever heard? Didn't you go to vacation Bible school and learn? You pray the sinner's prayer, and then Jesus comes to live in your heart. And then hopefully you grow up in your faith, and eventually the power of the Holy Spirit comes on your life. But it starts with Jesus in you, right? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Paul just said the reverse. He's talking to people who've trusted Jesus and he's saying, I am praying for you. I am praying that the power of the Holy Spirit will come and fill you in your inner being so that you'll get to the place that Christ lives in you. Wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying? Don't you have that backwards? No, he doesn't at all. Because you see, Paul understands this fundamental principle that while you get the Holy Spirit when you get saved... He was real clear about this. It's crazy that people argue about it. Romans 8, he said it as point blank as you possibly could. He said, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't belong to Christ. End of story. When you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, I pray that you would grow in this thing. That the power of the Spirit would be on you. So you'd get to the place that Christ actually does live in you. What's he talking about here? The first picture that God gave me in relation to this passage was, imagine if you will... That your backyard is just a depressing place. It's never been worked on. It's, it's infested with weeds and just kind of uneven space in the back. And just not a place you want to go to. And somebody comes along and says, you know, I, I'm beyond a landscaper. I love to do things with people yards, people's yards that turns them into a show place. Would you let me come in and do a makeover for your backyard? And you say... Sure, I guess so. It doesn't look great, so you do what you want to with it. And, and kind of like some of these TV shows with a big reveal at the end, they go in and without you seeing what they're doing, they go in and they install this incredible pool complex. Not just the old 20 by 40 rectangular pool, but this beautiful uniquely shaped pool and around it this fabulous patio and hot tub and all these rock features so that there's going to be cascading waterfalls one after the other working their way from the high points down into your pool. It's just incredible. And and then they bring you back to see it for the first time and it's like, ta-da, see what we've done with your ugly backyard. Look at this beautiful show place that we've turned it into. And you're just amazed and it's just so wonderful what they've installed. And they they just say, all you've got to do now is just fill it with water and just let the water flow and, and enjoy it. You're like, oh, thank you so much. It's wonderful. And then they go on their way. And they come back to visit you a couple of years later. And you say, come on back here again. I just want you to, want you to see what you did and what a difference it made in my backyard. And, and your friend who did all that for you walks around in your backyard and they look. And, and you say, see, it's, it's just like it was when you left it. Isn't it just beautiful? And, and they just stare with their mouth hanging open for a minute and say, well, you're right. It is just like I left it. But, but there's one thing missing. You never put any water in it. There's no water cascading down the rocks. The, the hot tub's just a big empty tub. The pool's just a big colorful hole in the ground. Everything that I built is there, but is serving no purpose. Nobody's benefiting from that. It's just a big hole and a pile of rocks. And what the Lord said to me is, when you get saved... And God immediately plants His Holy Spirit in you. It is the equivalent of having installed this incredible pool and patio and all of these rock features. All of this stuff is there. But until the water begins to flow, nobody really benefits from that. God's done the installation work. He's put His Spirit in you. But if you don't do your part to add the water, it's just the equivalent of a colorful big hole in a pile of rocks. Now that doesn't diminish the person of the Holy Spirit, but what Paul is saying is there's something else that has to happen that allows water to begin to flow through your life. He's saying, I pray that you wouldn't just be a big hole where the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence, but nothing is flowing through you. He's saying, I'm praying that something will happen so that this will be a real filled up space that will flow and that people will really benefit from that. You first and then others around you. Is that not not a picture of how so many people have lived their lives. They got saved and this incredible thing, the person of the Holy Spirit was installed in them. But if you watch them over time, when have you ever seen the water of life, the life of Jesus flowing through them? I know a lot of people like that. If we're honest, that pretty well describes a large portion of the church people I've ever known in my life. I got the Holy Spirit. I can show you in the Scripture proof. I got the Holy Ghost. It's like, yeah, but uh, I just don't know that I see anything of the life of Jesus flowing through you. You see, when when you have more than just the deposit of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus Himself takes up residence through you and begins to flow through you, the character of Jesus, the love of Jesus. Loving what he loves and hating what he hates. The power of Jesus and the capacity to hear and understand what God is saying and to be able to communicate that in the power of the Holy Spirit. That flows through us. So how do we begin to operate in that? What we'll talk about today is what that's all about. What we look at today is what this revolves around. Now I shared with you several Uh, several weeks ago, something that may sound a little weird to you, but I don't care. I'm just going to lay it out just as plainly as I can. Several months ago, um, I just really had this sense in my spirit that God was bringing us to a different chapter in the life of our church, that he was turning the page, that we've been in a, a season for about five years than have been about getting established and just planting and and just plowing the ground, but that God is moving us into a different phase. And so I began to just press in and seek the Lord about that. And there was one day in particular that stood out. I'd been out of town, and uh, I was by myself, and I'd caught a a flight uh, back to Pensacola. And as I got on the plane, this just I'd really been wrestling for days with this, and just wanting to to catch a clue clear picture of what it is God's saying about Freedom Church and where he's taking us next. And uh, I was on one of those little commuter flights, the kind that are just like 10 times louder than they should be, and I'm right next to the propeller, and and so I get in my seat. I'm really kind of dreading all the noise, so I stick in my earplugs, always carry in my shoulder bag for when I'm flying, and I I shove them in as deeply as I can to try and drown out the noise, and and I just close my eyes, and I'm like, God, I've got a couple of hours alone before I'll see or have to deal with anybody, and it's just these hours alone with you. I would love to just have you begin to show me a glimpse of what it is you're turning Freedom Church into, what you're calling us to be. And so I just sit there with my eyes closed and just try and just tune into what he's saying. And it is as if you just put a picture up on the big screen in my mind that he showed me a giraffe of all things. Which is pretty weird because I had not been to visit the zoo that week. I had not been watching Animal Planet or anything like that. It was just so clear, a picture of a giraffe. And so I've listened for the voice of God enough to know that a lot of times when God speaks to me, He'll speak through images, which is a very biblical thing to do. The truth be told, He does that with lots of us. Maybe not all of us have tuned in yet to recognize some of those things, because sometimes it seems weird on the surface. And a lot of times we'll need to pause and say, Okay, God, so what are you saying through that? What's that about? And let him just teach us about that. So I I did pause and say, okay, God, if that's what you're saying, then help me to get some glimpse of what that means. And over the last four or five months, he has fleshed out so many things that he is saying about Freedom Church from that one picture and that one concept. By the way, God frequently will speak to churches... Through symbols in nature, he'll speak to us as believers. Jesus loved to to teach using particular symbols in nature. Things like consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. And from that, he would teach important truths. So I'm just telling you, the Lord has said to Freedom Church, consider the giraffes of Africa. And uh, as I have, and I'm going to wear you out for the next three weeks with giraffes. So I'm sorry, but anyway, God's been teaching me and I'm just going to give it back to you. You know, there is, for starters, the obvious thing. Most of the creatures that we'll observe in nature, there are other things like them. You know, um, you you see a tiger and it looks so unique. And yet, when you think about a tiger, you go, well, but yeah, if you had to say, what's it like? Well, it's like a lot of other things. It's, It's like it's a cat. It's like a great big cat. We could name a bunch of the creatures that it's like. If you see a zebra... It, it just looks like a mule that's gone to prison. It's just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a horse or a mule that got black and white stripes. It, we could say, well, it's like these other things. Most things in nature are like that. The giraffe isn't like anything else. I mean, literally, scientifically, it's not like anything. You remember in science class when they taught you how biologists classify everything at seven different levels? Kingdom, phylum, class, genus, family, order. I mean, uh, uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order family genus species those seven things if you if you go down that line they're not just a unique species there's nothing else in their genus there's you can't say oh giraffes they're they're like they're like what they're they're not like anything else god didn't make anything else on earth like them they they just look like something that God just decided to have fun and, and say, Let's, what if we put one of these with one of these and four of these? It, it's just so unique. And part of what God has said about our church is churches, and pastors particularly, have the habit of trying to figure out who it is they're supposed to be like. Go find some other successful church, some other successful model. You go to a conference, you read a book, you, you look at the pastor in the church, and you go, that's who we're going to be like. Let's do the programs that they're doing. Let's preach the sermons that they're preaching. Let's make sure, Tony, that worship sounds just like theirs does. Let's be just like them. And God has said, be very clear on this. I am calling you to do and be something that's unique. And some of the things that I'm calling you to do, you're not even going to get to look at anybody else. Because nobody else around you is doing it. And you've got to be willing... To go to an uncomfortable place on some of these things to say, it's okay that nobody else is doing this. It's okay that we can't go, oh, there's another successful model of what it is we're supposed to do. That God's going, nope, be a giraffe, which isn't like anything else. Be a church that's willing to say the Spirit of God is a living person and He's on the move in order to keep step with Him. We can't constantly be looking around and looking backwards and saying, well, we need to stay like we used to be. I mean, I didn't grow up in a church that did that. And he's going, so what? I'm doing something new, unique, and different. Would you be willing to just move with that? So are you with me thus far? All right, let's saddle up a giraffe and ride on. Four, four things from this passage that I, I want to share with you today around the, the theme of being connected and growing. The first one is this, that we must be a people who seek daily to feed ourselves through prayer, scripture reading, and meditation. Paul said in verses 16 and 17, I pray that He would give you inner strength and power through His Spirit, then Christ will live in you through faith. If you're going to have the inner strength, the inner power that you're supposed to have, there is going to have to constantly be an intake on your part. You're going to have to constantly be fed. And while what happens in here on Sundays and what happens in your small group is a portion of that diet, the biggest part of your diet, you must take in on your own. And there's no substitute for this. You and I, every single one of us across the board, must be committed to individually feeding ourselves, or we will not be the church that we're supposed to be. We won't even get anywhere close to it. And you may say, well, that's nothing new. Thanks for telling us something we already knew. I'm just telling you, part of what has to define us as a different church is the average church member in the average church spends little to no time on a daily basis in the Word, in the Meditation time, alone with God. And if we're going to be a church where the power of God resides, where there is this flow through us that is the life of Jesus, every single one of us must make a commitment to feed ourselves on a daily basis. Okay, back to the giraffe. Giraffes, I was kind of amazed by this because they look kind of skinny from a distance. They have to eat between 35 and 65 pounds of food a day. That's a lot of grub. And that's leaves and flowers and berries. That's a lot of leaves, flowers, and berries to be 35 to 65 pounds. They are uniquely designed to be able to to do that really well, to to reach far and wide where others can't reach, and to collect this stuff. And that when I say they are unique, you're going to discover over the next three weeks just how unique they are. Like for one thing, they've got this 18 inch long black tongue for reaching out and grabbing hold of what nothing else wants to reach or grab hold of, and tearing it off. Of uh mostly the acacia trees that are full of thorns to feed themselves, but one of the features of of giraffes that's just rather interesting is when you think about human beings or whatever dogs or, or pigs when we 're newborns we tend to just pretty much lay there and insist that somebody else feed us you know i mean, we were when we were born, some of us looked like we grew up you know chasing after a bottle or the refrigerator, but the truth be told, we just laid there and somebody else had to bring it to us and feed us all the time. And and other animals tend to be that way. You know, dogs or pigs, they'll just kind of lay there and mama brings it up to them and, you know, they just nurse and and get their belly full. Giraffes are different in that from the time that they are born, the first thing that will decide whether they live or die is this. First of all, they have to be at least five to six feet tall because mama isn't going to bring it to them. They have to be able to reach mama. And secondly, on the day they are born, they must be able to stand up on their own four legs and raise their tall necks and reach up six feet high. And from the very first day, do their part to make sure that they get fed. And friends, that is a word picture for us. We can't just sort of lay around and, and you know, just coast through the week and come in on Sunday morning and say, Come on, preacher. I'm laying right here with my mouth wide open. Bring me that bottle. I hope you made a good formula this week. Hope you warmed it up. So many of us have lived so much of our lives the spiritual equivalent of that. And if we're going to be a different kind of people, we've got to be like the giraffe. You've got to stand on your own legs. You've got to stretch out your own neck toward heaven and say, Jesus, today, on Monday morning, on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday morning, I need to receive from you. I need to hear from you. I can't wait for Sunday. I can't just have all this second-hand Christianity only coming through somebody else. We've got to be people who all are committed to getting fed on a daily basis. And there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to that. That means I've got to get in the book. I've got to open the scriptures. I've got to read for myself. I've got to open my heart and open my mouth and talk to God. And I've got to shut up at times and listen to God. Prayer, Scripture, Meditation. We don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. It sounds a lot like Paul, but whoever it was said this. By now, you should be teachers. Instead, you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word. You need milk, not solid food. All those who live on milk lack the experience to talk about what is right. They are still babies. However, solid food is for mature people whose minds are trained by practice to know the difference between good and evil. We've got to be the kind of men and women who are so faithful on a daily basis that we're getting solid food, that we're growing up in our faith. Now start where you are. If it's not, Today's not designed to beat you up or make you feel guilty. But we've just got to start where we are. And if this is a new set of disciplines, I would encourage you, block off 15 minutes a day. You don't have to be a legalist about this, but just give yourself a beginning point. Can you find 15 minutes a day? I would suggest you make it essentially the same time of day. Make it first thing in the morning or during your lunch break or in the evening when you go to be able to Have a set time. And if you're starting with 15 minutes, take roughly 5 minutes of that time and tell God what's on your heart. Take 5 minutes of that time and read a chapter of scripture. And take 5 minutes of that time to be quiet. Don't read. Don't talk. Let your heart focus in on what you've read or what's going on in your life and just being sensitive to where God would speak in your heart by where He takes your thoughts in regard to His Word or to to what's going on around you. Prayer, Scripture, and meditation. Now, I will tell you because God is saying a very clear word to us that as a church, we can't be ordinary. Every single one of us has a part to play in being a church where we're all getting fed on a daily basis. If we're going to be that kind of church, we're going to have to talk about this. We're going to have to reinforce this. Because the bottom line is so simple. We all know human nature. We'll slide back into old habits, won't we? People don't do what you expect. They do what you inspect. We're not going to turn into a bunch of legalists where every week it's going to be, all right, starting on this side of the room, everybody tell us, how much time did you spend in Scripture? No, that's not what we're doing. But we will, on a regular basis, in small group and in other places, we're going to be asking those kinds of questions. Hey, what are you reading in Scripture right now? And how is that going? How, how are those times for you? How many days this week have you been in the Word? And what's God saying to you in that? It's not an attempt to be legalistic. It's an attempt to create positive peer pressure where we look around and go, man, other people are learning and they're growing and they're hearing from God and I want what they've got. And together, we want to see the water level rise in this pool. Are you with me? Yes. You want that? That's going to mean that we've got to be willing to submit to one another at a level that we're willing to be asked some questions. Not so somebody pins us to the wall, but so that together we're helping each other to raise the water level in the pool. It starts with that piece. We've all got to be willing to seek to feed ourselves daily. And then the second is this. We must be committed to living in community through small groups. In verse 18, Paul says, this way with all of God's people you will be able to understand how wide, long, high, and deep His love is. It's interesting, this concept of of togetherness, that only together with God's people will we come to know and understand and live in the reality of the love of God. We're going to talk more about the love of God in just a minute, but right now I want to talk about the together aspect. Part of, of what's just a significant piece of the American perspective is it's all about me. And what I do, I mean, it's part of what is is neat about a capitalistic society where, you know, your success or failure is about you. Were you willing to work hard? Were you willing to study? Were you willing to take risk or whatever, pull yourself up by your bootstraps? It's that rugged individualism that's a part of, of just American culture and thinking. The problem is we've carried that, which is generally a positive, over into our spiritual lives and turned it into, spiritually speaking, We may all belong to one church, but it's really all about me and Jesus and, you know, a hundred other people in the room. it's just all about you and Jesus, and it's not. And it never was meant to be that way. People in in Eastern culture, they get this. They think collectively. By the way, Jesus had an Eastern mind. The writers of Scripture had Eastern minds. It's part of why so many times we will just miss the point of what they're trying to communicate. God's purpose in creation was to form a family of people for himself. We think in terms of, am I going to heaven? Do I have a relationship with God? Am I right with God? As if everything's just about me and Jesus. Jesus didn't create a bunch of orphans, He formed a family of people for Himself. We belong together, and only together will we grow up in our faith. Only together will we grow in the love of God. So we must learn to experience community together. Now, I'm grateful that you're all in the same room with me. That helps. It helps that we got to sing together. You know, if you weren't in the room, you couldn't communicate very well what happened in the first 30 minutes of worship today, could you? You just had to be here to hear the Soggy Bottom boys. All of you folks at home, I'm sorry, you missed that. You didn't get that. But it's more than just hearing the music or singing the song. Something sacred happens When we're together. But I will tell you this. Though this is so important. There's a level of community that is so valuable that you don't begin to get in this room. And it's why we've always placed such a heavy emphasis on small groups. Because it gives us an opportunity to really share together. One, we get a lot more time together. But we actually get to know people. We get to connect. We get to find out what's going on in one another's lives. And there's a whole other level of depth to that. It's not surprising then, but kind of cool to realize how social giraffes are. It's one of the more striking things that God's been speaking to me about giraffes, is to realize that they always belong with a group. And what's really been curious, and God has spoken a very specific word concerning this, is giraffes belong to two groups. One of them is a mixed group, males and females running together. And it can be anywhere from a few up to about three dozen but it's, it's their mixed, larger group. They spend the rest of their time, very interestingly, in same gender groups. Where the ladies, giraffes all hang with the other ladies. And the little ones and all the, the boy giraffes hang together. I'll make the point about that in just a minute. First off, the mixed groups. We focused on this for five years. We focused on this at my last church. The the critical importance of experiencing Christian community together. We see the model of that from the time the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. Where the believers from the very outset, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the community, that is not the community at large, but to the Christian community, to their shared meals and to their prayers. And every day they met together in the temple courts where they were under the apostles' teaching. And they ate in their homes and they shared their food with gladness and simplicity. We have always sought to follow that two-part model. That no matter what else we do or don't do, those two things, until Jesus returns, we'll always do. We will gather together where we'll share and worship together and where we will focus together on one primary teaching from God's word. And then we will break up into the homes during the week. And in that situation, where in a much smaller group. We get to know one another. We're going to share meals together. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. We'll pray together. We'll wrestle with the Word and with the teaching of the week. And how do I live this out? We have been and will continue to be committed to that. And if you're not a part of a group, whether that be through Celebrate Recovery, which is another one of our expressions of small group community, or through our adult small groups, if you're not already in that We want very much to try and help you find a place to belong in that regard. And if you're not there, all you have to do is let me or John or Beth or one of the leaders know, and we'll help make that happen. We've got a variety of groups meeting on different nights. I will tell you, though, the thing that that God has so driven home for me lately is the next piece in this, and this brings us to the third point in the outline, and it's it's the other group that the giraffes run in they spend the majority of their time in single-gender groups. The boys with the boys and the girls with the girls. And that environment does not on any large scale exist in Freedom Church. And the Lord has spoken so clearly that has to change. Now, we've understood from the get-go that the primary advantage and... uh, and main thing that happens when we do small groups as we do them is we get to experience Christian community. The New Testament spells out five purposes for the church while it's still on earth. Those five purposes are discipleship, evangelism, worship, fellowship, and ministry. And we understand that of those things, the primary one of those five that small group accomplishes is the fellowship piece, the koinonia piece, the the. Experience of Christian community, of sharing life together. It is hugely important for us. It's life-giving. It helps us to grow. But it's not where worship happens. It's why we do this. But it's not where discipleship primarily happens. It can move us a little way down the field in that regard, but not a long distance. When we get together in smaller groups than small group, and where guys are with guys and ladies are with ladies... We create an environment that is much richer for discipleship to really take place. God began to really drive this home for me two years ago. And made a real clear and specific call on me to begin to make an, a specific investment in this regard with other men. That would have a multiplying effect. And that brings us to what I've said here in the third point of your outline. And that is that we must each commit to a multiplying process of growth and discipleship. In verse 17, Paul said, Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. That is a picture of discipleship taking place. Where we don't stay baby Christians. Where we get a solid foundation. And where we begin to really grow up into who we're supposed to be individually and as the church. And I will say to you, while worship is wonderful and rich and a good experience, so we should always be committed to this. There is a limit to how much you can grow through the worship experience. And there are even limitations to how much you can grow if all you do is depend on your own quiet time. Together with all of God's people, you will grow up into the love of God. Yes, we need what happens in the, the groups of 10, 12, 15 people, men and women sharing together. Healthy stuff going on there. But there is a completely different level of discipleship that happens. When two or three or four men... Or women get together on a regular basis, for instance, every week with a very intentional focus to say we are here to help each other move forward as, rapid, as rapidly as we can in growing up in our faith. And so two years ago, God called me to begin to, to very intentionally begin to sow into the lives of three other men. Not in just sort of a generic way of, well, we'll just sort of see where this goes. But he laid out a track to run on and a particular time frame to operate within. It's interesting to me that that day on the airplane, when God first put this picture of a giraffe in my mind, in my spirit, I know this sounds weird, I'm just telling you what happened. In my spirit, I heard so clearly, look into the gestation process For a giraffe. And I'm like, okay, I've never been interested in that. I don't know what that means. And when I looked it up, it's, because I had no idea how long that was. For a giraffe, it's 13 to 15 months. Women, aren't you glad you really aren't giraffes? Nine is plenty long. 13 to 15 months. And from the moment that I read that, it was so clear what God said. That's the time frame for this critical discipling process that's supposed to take place. When you take in one or two or three people and, and you hold them in really close proximity and you invest in them before releasing them, 13 to 15 months is how long this is supposed to take place. And he I'm just telling you, he gave me such a clear track and he began doing this two years ago saying, take one to three men at a time and you... you Track with them down this specific process. And I'll just tell you what it looks like. Now I'm I'm with a second group of of men doing this. Three guys I already have walked through this with. And now I'm walking through it with another group of guys now. and First of all, it starts with a real clear communication of what we're here to do. We are here to study some things. And I'll I'll lay out. There's there's a track we're going to follow for what we study. And we're going to get together every week at this set time. And we'll spend about half of our time talking about and wrestling with what we've studied that week. And I'll share in just a moment what what it is we study. We'll spend part of this time praying together. We'll spend part of this time doing accountability together. and, And a part of this time just sharing what God's teaching us. And where we see God at work. And just learning together to hear the voice of the Lord. But here's part of the deal on the front end. We will not begin this process without you understanding clearly. We're making a commitment to one another for a little over a year. 13, 14, 15 months. Somewhere in there. We're going to do this thing together. It's not just the hour or two we're together on Monday morning. But it's what we have to do all through the week. But we're committed to our times each week. But a big piece of what you have to commit to on the front end is not just that you'll finish the next 13 to 15 months. Here's the big piece. We are making a commitment that we will multiply what's happening here. At the very least, you have to commit... That when we finished our 13 to 15 months, you will turn around and you'll reproduce what we've done here again. And I'm not going to be around for that. You're going to find one, two, or three other men and you're going to ask them to make the exact same commitment. I'm not asking you for one year. I'm asking you for a little over two years. You're going to spend the first half of that with me. The second half you won't spend with me. You'll spend investing in other people. And this is going to be a multiplying process, so that at the end of 13 to 15 months, when we've walked through this process, now you turn around and do the exact same thing with other people being just as intentional. Now the hope is that you won't just do that one more time, but that you'll do it again and again, and you'll ask them to do the same thing, the guys that you lead. It sounds a lot like what Paul is talking about in Second Timothy 2, 2, when he says, You've heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. In one verse, you get four generations of Christian discipleship. Paul said, Timothy, you know I've had you with me. I've sown all this into you up close and personal for so long. So you've received all this, second generation, Timothy. So now, Timothy, I want you to turn around. I want you to do the same thing. You find some reliable men, a few guys you can really trust pour those same things into them and make sure they're the kind of men who will then turn around and do the exact same thing again and again and again. That is a picture of what has kept the church strong for over 2,000 years. You get that what makes us strong is not our name, it's not a denominational tie, and it's not the buildings. It's the relationships And the discipleship that gets passed from generation to generation to generation. And we have not ever embraced a mechanism for making this happen. We just, in the church, have sort of said, well, I I hope it happens. I grew up in church where we did what we called discipleship training every week. It was 6 o'clock Sunday night. It was training union when I was little and then we changed the name to... Discipleship training You shared the Methodist experience, Tony. Now the Baptist experience. Training union, then discipleship training. And i got to tell you, it didn't look anything like discipleship. What it looked like was our other quarterly that looked like our Sunday school quarterly, but it was part B. And we pulled it out and we read a lesson out of that. And then when we got done with that, we'd find something else to goof off and, and fill our time. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is helping one another grow up in our faith. Now, I know at this point, a lot of folks are probably kind of going, I'm still not sure what that looks like or how in the world I buy into that. There's not just one way to do this, but I'll tell you what, what I'm doing with the guys that I work with. We take the first six months, and in terms of our study, we devote those six months to a study that takes us through 25 different concepts, for 25 different weeks, that gets us into 25 core doctrines of the Christian faith. That may sound dry, but it's not. It gets us on a solid foundation of what we believe and why. But it's, it's not just about understanding who God is or understanding you know the authority of Scripture. It goes way beyond those things. To, more than just understanding salvation. It, it gets down to basic things like understanding spiritual gifts and what your giftedness is. Understanding spiritual warfare and how we walk in victory. Understanding how to be a discipler. Understanding how to manage your money. 25 Core concepts for Christian believers. And then we spend the next 12 weeks focused on learning to be a leader. 12 fundamental things that you've got to learn to do in order to leverage influence in the lives of others. Learning to be a Christian leader. And then we spend 12 weeks focusing on the 12 classic spiritual disciplines. Learning to be fed. Learning to hear from God. Learning to live a life of worship and celebration and service. That's the basic track that we follow in terms of our study now that's not the only way to do it but that's a beginning point for Freedom Church there are at least half of us who have been down this track and I know we're only seeing the leading edge of what God's going to have us do here but we have got to be a church where the majority of the men and the women are committed to not only be willing to be discipled but to be disciplers now I knew coming in There aren't going to be a room full of, yeah, and amens to that. Because we're thinking right now going, I wonder where I fit into that and if I would like that. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes a willingness for every one of us to recognize something that church probably didn't drive home very well. And that is, if you are a follower of Jesus, by definition, you must be a disciple maker. And you don't make disciples by telling them the Roman road. That's only beginning to introduce them to the concept of salvation and hopefully lead them to begin a relationship with Jesus. Disciple makers. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is a learner. Somebody who comes along as the student. If you are a disciple maker, that means you have to be a teacher. Sounds a lot like what Hebrews just said. By now, every one of you should be teachers. Every one of you should be disciple makers. And if you feel like, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable yet in that role of being a disciple maker, that's okay. No guilt or shame there. Be a disciple for a year. We can hook you up for that. Now, here's part of the challenge. I'm just laying it bare. I don't disciple women. And I'm not planning on going into that business. We're going to have to have some women who rise to the surface and are willing to be the first generation intentional disciple makers for Freedom Church. I had not figured out what all that looks like. But we, we've got to have that happen so that, and the scriptures, Paul talks about this. The women discipling women and the men discipling men. This has to be something that we are com- as committed to as a church as we currently are to small group ministry. Like the giraffes that run in mixed groups and in the second level of groups, we have to buy into the second level of groups. Are you with me? you have questions about that? I do. (laughs) I don't have all of my answers. Do you have any questions you want to ask right now about that? All right. We're moving on. There's a fourth piece. We must be a people defined by love and grace rather than by rules and fear. He says in in verse 17, I pray also that that love may be the ground into which you sink your roots and on which you have your foundation. He says... I want you to know the love of God, the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God. Love must be the thing that defines us as a church. Do you realize how many churches don't have that? I mean, every Christian church talks about love, right? I mean, in theory. they all we all it's hard to say you're Christian and not throw the word love around. But how many churches have you been into? And it was like, I think that's the one word you can't use. <laughs> Cold or harsh or judgmental might fit really well, but loving doesn't fit very well. And love has, be, has to be the defining mark of this church. Churches so many times are, are ruled by um, power—you know, power-hungry people, control-hungry people. Churches oftentimes are dominated by fear. You better do the right thing. God's going to get you if you don't. There are so many Christians out there, they are just waiting for the hammer to fall. It's like, I know I've been forgiven and I know that I'm going to heaven, but I know God's going to get me. I know He's going to punish me because I know all the bad things that I did. And even though I've confessed them, I've just lived in an environment that's about judgment and punishment for so long that I I just live in fear of God. And That is not who we're called to be. This is not going to be a church where fear rules the day. You know, one of the coolest things that I've learned about giraffes, and I've seen this, giraffes before all this were like my favorite animal, and all the trips that we've made to Africa, it's just, God's given us a lot of close encounters with giraffes. One day, this was the coolest thing the very first day that I ever got to go out once we were in the field the first year the first day that we went out to show the Jesus film and witness and it's not dark yet so we've set up and we're waiting for it to get dark so we can show the Jesus film using the generator and and a group of about 20 Africans had just come up out of the bush and were sitting there so through a translator we're sharing the gospel with them and we had to stop because we got interrupted by a group of giraffes that came running through right where we were standing I mean you just couldn't go on sharing the gospel because everybody, even the Africans, stop and just watch these giraffes run right by us, and it's like, Well, that's probably a once in a lifetime experience when you had to stop sharing Jesus to let the giraffes run through. I don't know why I told you that story, but anyway, they they um they are fascinating creatures. But oh, I know where I was going with that. One of the things about them, where we were that year uh, was out in a pretty open space. And in fact, we were on this gentle long slope that led to a, a big open plain, sort of at the, at the bottom of this gigantic natural bowl. And every day, all day long, you could see th- these animals you know, out in the open. And the giraffes are just, just out in the open. Now, we've had a certain amount of tension because there were lions all around and they actually had to have the Masai people march around with their swords and spears at night, all night, every night, to keep us protected from the lions. But the giraffes just stayed out in the open, which is like kind of weird. So I did some reading about that, like what, what's the deal with giraffes and they, how they just live out in the open. Here's one of the interesting things that I learned. You know, they have these really weird color patterns that just blends in. So one of the things, so many times when you ever do see them in the bush, you have to look hard to see them because they just so blend in, but one of the things that zoologists tell us that's unusual about giraffes, even though God has perfectly colored them so that they could blend in, they don't try to blend in once they've grown up. They live out in the open because they don't live in fear of predators. Now, their natural predators are wild dogs, um, hyenas, and lions. Those all sound big and bad, and they kill most everything that they want to out there, but they pretty much will not mess with an adult giraffe. Because they stay in groups, and because they know how to deal with predators. God has given an adult giraffe four hooves that are each a foot in diameter. They are tremendously powerful and heavy, and even a lion fears it. As long as they use what they've been given and stay in groups, lions will not mess with them. So even though they could hide and blend in, they don't even try to. They just live large and out in the open, going wherever they want to. And they they roam far and wide. They don't try and rule the jungle. They just don't live in fear of anything in the jungle. It isn't hard to make the connection between that and us, is it? We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. But oh, by the way. The very first prophecy ever given about Jesus found in Genesis chapter 3 was about how that, that wicked old enemy would strike at our heel, but that he would be crushed underneath our feet. And God says, I, I've given the ability to, you to crush the enemy. You don't live a life of fear. You live out in the open. Now, immature young giraffes, they try and blend in and hide. But the Lord says, when you grow up in your faith, you don't live in fear. You don't operate in fear. You can live out in the open. But there's a key piece that's necessary for us to embrace this life of love that lets us just live out in the open. And you know what it is? It's forgiveness and grace. The only people who will live like this are people who are in touch with how much they've been forgiven. Luke tells us this wonderful story in Luke chapter 7. It's not a parable, it's a true story. If you grew up in church, you've heard the story. Jesus was invited by a Pharisee. That's an old term for a modern concept. That means he was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher and probably the chairman of the Sunday school committee. He was Mr. Christian, respected by all. I guarantee you he was on the personnel committee or the finance committee if he went to the Baptist church. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious, committed man. He had heard about Jesus. He was curious about Jesus. He needed to check him out, see if he checked out. So he had Jesus over for dinner. And Jesus is at dinner, and it's a hard thing for us to picture, but at a dinner like this, the invited guest would would recline on an elbow, kind of laying down at a low table. But around the wall surrounding them would be sort of the second level of people. They weren't invited dinner guests. They were just interested people who came to listen in, and they just kind of hang back a few feet away, listening to the conversation at the table. There's a very sinful woman who was a part of the second-level crowd. Jesus is interacting with the the table crowd and with the Pharisee who's curious about him. And this woman, who's a very sinful woman, it it would seem from, from the wording of Scripture that she was a former prostitute. She was certainly a woman with a terrible reputation. Somewhere along the way, she had encountered Jesus. And she didn't get condemnation. She did not get punishment. What she got was an offer of grace and forgiveness. And for the first time in her life, she walked away from a conversation feeling clean and whole again after encountering Jesus. And it has so radically changed her life, she couldn't get it together again emotionally. To be in the presence of Jesus, the tears would just begin to flow. as She remembered what she had been and what a different person she was for having come close to Jesus. And as Jesus is having a conversation with Mr. Sunday School Teacher, she just crept closer to Jesus and her tears dripping down off of her cheeks, began to wet Jesus' feet as she just bowed in adoration at the feet of Jesus. And and realizing that she's wetting His feet, her her hair hanging down, she didn't have a towel, she just began to, to wipe Jesus' dirty feet clean of the dirt and the tears on His feet with her hair just so grateful. For what Jesus had done in her life. And the Pharisee, looking at this, Mr. Sunday School teacher, just began to judge Jesus as a result of this, going, If this man were really a prophet, he'd know what a hoe he had at his feet. He'd know just what he had. He wouldn't know he didn't have any business having this woman get anywhere close to him. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, spoke directly to them. And he said, Mr. Sunday School teacher, I came in your house, and you didn't even do the basic custom of offering me water for my dirty feet. And yet this woman has washed my feet with her tears and her hair. You see, the reason that she's done this is because she's been forgiven much. And the one who is forgiven much loves much. Mr. Pharisee Sunday school teacher... You never thought you needed to be forgiven much of anything. And because you've been forgiven little, you love little to none. I hate admitting this to you. This used to be one of the most offensive verses in the New Testament to me. Because I would read that verse, and as a self-righteous Pharisee of the 20th century, I would say in my heart, Well, God, that's not very fair. I've been a good guy all my life. I don't sleep around. I don't cuss, I don't drink, I don't smoke. I'm a good Christian, and you're telling me I can't love you very much because I haven't been forgiven very much? What I failed to realize was how much I had needed the grace and forgiveness of God in my life. For starters, for the incredibly unloving judgmental attitude that I carried in my life, and I could make a long list beyond that, it wasn't until I finally became broken over my own sinfulness and depravity And could see the love and grace of God in my life that allowed me to truly begin to love and embrace other broken people around me. You can't love freely and give grace and love until you've received the love of God. Paul said, what I pray for you is that you would come to know the love of God. The fullness, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love of God in your life. That you would experience it and that you would share it. You see, once you've done that, you can live out in the open. I love that new small groups for the year have kicked off. Our group meets at our house, and we've got uh, a third of our groups brand new to our, to our group. I love that. love the freshness that that adds. And we've been sharing our personal testimonies to kick off the year. We finished that last Wednesday night. And it was just so sweet. As we sit in a room, some of us who've known each other a long time, some who are brand new in group to each other, and as you listen to people share their stories... And it's not that we glory in our shame. It's not that at all. But to hear people share both their joys and the depth of their sorrows and failures and brokenness. And in that, it's just like magic happens. The love of God. And the grace of God, of sharing together in God's family, where we don't hide together, we we, we don't hide from each other, running to the woods, trying to to blend in. Oh no, I'm a good Christian, I've never messed up. I have a bunch of Sunday school pens, I've lived a good life. We don't have to hide behind that. We can just say, here's who I am, here's who I've been, here's who God has made me to be, here's how much God has forgiven in my life, here's how much I need you in my life. We just get to live out in the open. And the enemy has no ground for accusation when you live there. He doesn't get to hold you in bondage to fear and guilt and shame when you can just live in the open like that. I'm not afraid of what you're going to find out about me. I can live in the open because have I, have I been a failure? Have I blown it? Yes, but the grace of God and the love of God is greater than my sins. And together we can share in community in that safe place. That's why so many of us, our hearts still well up when we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. Oh God, I was so blind to his love, to my need for his forgiveness. I was blind, but now I see. Freedom Church. Freedom Church will be a safe place to live in the open, to share in community together. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? God, how we give you thanks for your grace in our lives, for your love for us. And today, we want to receive again and experience the reality of your love. Maybe... You've never in your life experienced the love and forgiveness of God. If that's the case, would you open your heart to that today? You don't have to earn it. He offers it. Maybe you've known the love of God, but your life's been a little bit more like that empty pool. And you just need so desperately to begin to feel the life-giving water of God's love and forgiveness and grace and presence flowing in you again. If that's where you are, would you just confess to God your sin and your desire for His forgiveness and for Him to draw near and that what Paul said would be true of you here today. That Christ would come to live in you. That you would be filled with the fullness of God. Oh God, that is our prayer today. Fullness. We don't want a little dose. We don't want a few drops. We want your fullness in us, in our lives and in this church. Oh God, let your water, let your love, your passion flow in us. We open ourselves to that today. Come live here in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.